Like I said last week, good stories usually have both conflict and resolve. And at times, the greater the conflict means the greater the resolve, which makes for an even greater story. And this is especially true when it comes to God's story. In His story, we see great conflict. We also see miraculous resolve. And like we said last week, what sets God's story apart, the reason why this story is considered by many to be the greatest story ever told is not just because the conflict is great and the resolve is great, but also because this story is absolutely true. Unlike fairy tales we grew up on, this story happened in real time, in a real place in history. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. We are continuing our series through the book of Ephesians this morning entitled Walking Worthy. And last week, we looked at the first half of this great passage in the first part of Ephesians 2. We looked at Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And we're going to cover the the rest of the passage this morning. And you'll remember I, I said last week that in this passage of Scripture, Paul gives us a great summary of God's gospel. And we also explained last week that the reason he gives us this great summary here is because Paul knows that before he gives us this command to walk worthy in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, Paul knows that we the reader must first have a good grasp on the work that God has done for us, which is what we find here in verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. It's one of my favorites in all the Bible. And I said last week, if you were going to write cliff notes for the gospel, if you were going to summarize God's gospel in a few hundred words, I guarantee you, you could not do it better than Paul does it here. And what we find in Paul's summary of God's story is that there is both great conflict and great resolve. Last week, we looked at the great conflict of God's story. We discussed the fact that all people, without exception, are spiritually dead because of sin. And we looked at three common characteristics of those who are dead in sin without Christ. We said that spiritually dead people, they walk with the world. They walk with the enemy, and they walk in the flesh, and as a result, they walk apart from and opposed to God. We also said that there's great consequence for living in this way. The great consequence of living a life apart from and and opposed to God is that those that do so continue in unrepentance. They have to face God and His wrath in the life to come. Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, those who live in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, are by nature children of wrath. So scripture is clear that God's wrath is set against any and everyone who is opposed to him, any and everyone who do not belong to him, no exceptions. And that's the great conflict and the great 
consequence that we're all faced with in this life. Sin is universal. And we all start out in this life living lives for ourselves and against God. And the wages, the the payment for that sin is spiritual death. So we're told in Ephesians 6.23. And if the story ended there, folks, let's be honest, we'd be sunk, wouldn't we? We would. Lost and alone, without a hope in the world, but praise be to God, that's not the end, right? Though God's story has great conflict, it also has great resolve. No, we touched on this a bit last week. The resolve in God's story is going to be our major focus this morning, the main focus this morning. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says, but God, one of the best phrases in all the Bible right there. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Let's first take a moment just to focus on the first two words in verse 4, but God. Notice this chapter begins with, and you. Paul says, and you were dead in sin. You walked with the world, with the enemy, and in the flesh, and you were, by nature, a child of wrath. Paul says, and you were this way. And then, notice the transition in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... And because of the great love with which he's loved us, has made us alive. Though we were dead because of our own sinfulness, God, because of his great mercy and love, has brought us back from death. We were spiritual zombies, as we said last week. Death walkers, dead to sin, walking around with, with, with just in our, in our flesh. Guided by the ways of the world, walking with the enemy. We were dead, Paul says. But he says, but God has brought us back from death. He has made us a new creation. He has raised us up to life. He has raised us up to walk with him in newness of life. That's great news for us, isn't it, believers? And that's the great resolve of God's story. Though we were dead because of sin, look at the resolve, we are saved because of God. And I want you to notice three things here about our salvation that we learn from this passage. First, we learn, number one, we are saved by God's grace. We are saved by God's grace. Look at the end of verse 5 through verse 7. Paul says, by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something here that was just crystal clear to me. It just jumped out at me when I studied this passage. This work that God has done for us, The salvation that God has accomplished on our behalf is in no way, shape, or form contingent on our deserving. 
Paul says, by grace, you've been saved. Now, if you've been a part of a Bible-believing church for any length of time, you should know what the biblical definition of grace is. The biblical definition of grace is God's unmerited and undeserved favor. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's unearned. It's a gift of God, not based on our deserving. Folks, we did not move and motivate God in any way to save us. Do you realize that? God didn't look down on us and said, you know, he didn't look down on us and say, oh my goodness, you know, these people are so wonderful, I just can't help myself. Didn't work like that. When Paul makes mention of God's motivation for saving us, he does not say one positive thing about us. Look at it again. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's a negative, by the way, on us, God made us alive together with Christ. By his grace, you've been saved. Look at the end of verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What motivated God to save us? Paul tells us. His mercy, his great love, his grace, and his kindness. That's what moved God. That's what moved him to do this great work in us. Folks, this is a key truth that we must get into our heads. To walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called, you must first come to the realization that you have been saved by God because of who He is. Not because of who you are. Not because of anything that you've done. The scriptures say we've been saved in spite of who we are. Is that not what Paul said in Romans 5, 8? God demonstrated his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God did this. We didn't deserve it. He did it. Your salvation is in no way, shape, or form contingent on your deserving. When you come to realize that, when you come to the point where you truly understand the, the great grace that's been shown you by God, I guarantee you it'll result in you walking worthy for him. When you come to understand that, believers. Notice that not only does Paul stress the great mercy and grace that God has shown us, but he also explains to us here the great work that God has done for us. Notice a few things that Paul mentions here that God's done for us. God has made us alive. God has raised us up. God has seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. First, he's made us alive. Paul says, while you were dead in sin, God did something about it. He intervened. He made you alive. And notice, he doesn't say, you made you alive, does he? He says, God made you alive. And notice he also says, with Christ. If you've been saved, you've been made alive because of the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been, been made alive with him. Paul's stressing here the fact that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raised us up from the dead. 
You remember when this happened in your life, believers? You remember this? Boy, I do. I was in college. I was living for myself. And I had no interest whatsoever in God. But he intervened. He changed my heart and life. He raised me up from spiritual death to eternal life. And you know what happened when he did that? My desires changed. I became sensitive to God's leading. I opened my Bible. I began to read it and I understood what it said. I was aware for the first time of God's work in my life and in his world. That's what Paul's talking about, believers, when he says God has made you alive with Christ. God did that for us, believers. But that's not the only thing. Look at verse 6. Paul says, And God raised us up with him and seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul is, is referring back to what he said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Flip back with me, if you will, to Ephesians 1. And look at verse 20. Look at how similar it is to Chapter 2, verse 6. In, in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says this. Notice what he says. He says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, keep your finger on that point and go back to chapter 2, verse 6 and look at what Paul says. The exact same thing. And God raised us up with him and seated us in him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Get this, this is awesome. In chapter 1, Paul is talking about Christ's resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation. But notice here in Ephesians 2 that Paul says not only did God raise Christ and seat him at his right hand, but the Father has also raised us up in Christ and has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Believers, what Paul is saying here is truly amazing, and this right here is reason enough for you to walk worthy for God. Get this. When God saved you, he not only raised you up from spiritual death to spiritual life. But he gave us a seat, believers, in the heavenly places in and with Christ. The same way Christ ascended to be with the Father. God, God has done a similar work for us. We're going to have a similar fate here. Because we're in Christ, we get to experience all these wonderful benefits that Christ experienced. Be honest, how amazing is that? John MacArthur said this in his commentary on Ephesians. Look at what he said here. Look at this quote. He says, not only are we dead to sin and alive to righteousness through his resurrection in which we are raised, but we also enjoy his exaltation and share in his preeminent glory. Wow. Why did God do this for us? How can this happen? Because we're in Christ. 
Get this. When you give your life to Christ, your life is then hid with his. Isn't that what Paul said in Colossians 3, 4? He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, believers, then you will also appear with him in glory. Believers, do you realize because Christ is your life, what's true for him is true for you? How awesome is that? Notice also in verse 6, Paul's speaking in the past tense. He says, God has raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, now what does Paul mean here when he says we've already been raised and seated with Christ? Does that mean we're already in heaven? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm here on earth. You? Yeah. So what's he talking about? Well, in one sense, he's talking about that's how certain our future is. It's a done deal. It was accomplished at the cross, at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But I think there's another application to be made here. Though we are physically here, folks, do you know spiritually, mentally, and emotionally we're to be there? We are. Though we're physically here, we're spiritually, mentally, and emotionally to be there. Our destination is with God. That's where our home is. And at this very moment, our minds, our thoughts, our hopes, our desires, our dreams are to be there. Not here, but there. Though we are here walking in and through this dark and dead world, we are alive in Christ and our life is in heaven with him. Now, why did God do this for us? Why why save us? Why redeem us? Some have suggested it's because God was lonely and needed our companionship. But you know, if you've been in here for any length of time or been through any of our theology classes that we provide, that's not the case. God does not need anyone or anything. He self-exists, as it says in Scripture. He is in need of no one or nothing. He doesn't need us. He wants us, but he doesn't need us. We also know, because we believe that the one true God of the Scriptures is a triune God. He exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God has existed in perfect relationship with Himself for all of eternity. He doesn't need us, but He wants us. Why? Why? Why does God redeem us? Paul tells us in verse 7, look at it. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. According to this verse, the reason God did this for us is to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. You see, God wants to be seen. He wants to be known. He wants us to share this about him, that he is a God of great grace. He goes to great lengths throughout his word to make this known to us. And Paul here is saying the reason why he has made us alive and has raised us up and has seated us in the heavenly places with Christ is because he wants to be known as a God of great grace. He wants to be known as a kind and loving and merciful God who delights in redeeming. Therefore, we need to make that known, don't we, believers? Paul says, that's it. 
That's the reason God did this for us. The reason why he saved us from sin and death is because he wants to be seen. He wants to be known. He wants to be praised. He wants to be served. He wants to be worshipped for the kind and the gracious God that he is. So that's the first point Paul makes about salvation. He makes it very clear we're saved by God's grace. He also stresses that we are saved through our faith. We are saved through our faith. Salvation is by God's grace through our faith. Look at where we see this. Verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Pretty clear, right? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So notice... There is a response here by us. Paul says that we're saved by grace through faith. There is a response that is required. Paul makes this point clear in Romans 10, 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice a confession is required here. And some of you are probably scratching your heads at this, thinking, well, I thought we said earlier... Salvation is solely a work of God. But it sounds here like it's it's a work of man. Well, look again at verses 8 and 9. Read it carefully. Paul says, By grace, by God's unmerited and undeserved favor, you've been saved through faith. And then look at the next line. This is not your own doing. You know what Paul means when he says, This is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. Salvation is not a work of man. It's a work of God, folks. And you're probably thinking, well, how does that work? How is salvation solely a work of God, but still contingent upon my profession of faith? Well, let me explain how it's explained in the scriptures. First, God does this work in us. And the work he does in us, it works. And it awakens us to faith. And then we respond by trusting in him. So God is sovereign in our salvation, yet the scriptures also teach that man is responsible. Scripture teaches both, and we are to affirm both. And how all that plays out is a mystery. I don't know, you don't know, and don't believe anyone who says they've got it all figured out. I know how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility works. I can explain it using human logic and earthly illustrations. Don't believe that person. It's a mystery. Anyone who's ever tried to do that, you know what they do? They veer off into heresy and they misrepresent God. Just affirm that it's a mystery. It's One of those secret things that belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? It doesn't go against reason, but it does go beyond our reasoning. Which a lot of things go beyond our reasoning. So don't be too messed up by that, all right? We cannot fully understand it, but we can truly understand it from God's word. Because scripture teaches both, and we're to affirm both. Scripture teaches salvation is a work of God. It's by His grace. Yet it is through our faith, but it's not of our own doing. You got it? (laughs) Clear as mud? All right. 
Just affirm. It's a mystery. But we affirm both. Okay? All right. So that's the second point Paul makes here about our salvation. Not only are we saved by God's grace, but we're also saved through our faith. Well, there's a third and final point that Paul makes here when it comes to salvation. Not only are we saved by God's grace through our faith, but we're also, get this, very important, we are saved for good works. That's key, folks. We are saved for good works. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here Paul gives a reason why we've been saved. He says here, we have been saved for good works. We have been saved so that we would in turn walk worthy for God. That's Paul's point here. He says, you were created, you were saved, you were made new in Christ Jesus for good works. You were saved so that you would in turn live for God and walk worthy for him. I mentioned this a while back, but it needs to be mentioned again and again in here because scripture mentions it again and again. Nathaniel read about it in in Titus. Read that again. Titus 3, 1 through 8. Titus says it. Paul says it in Titus. But there is a reason God has saved us, and it's not ultimately for us. Do you know that? God has selfish reasons for redeeming us. The reason God has redeemed us is because he desires worship from us. The reason God restores and redeems us is so that we would in turn worship him in both word and in deed. You know, we have a tendency to make salvation all about us. We have a tendency to share it in a way in which it's solely centered upon us. I'm going to share something with you. Maybe shocking for some of you who haven't heard me say it before, before, but it's true. God's gospel does not ultimately center upon you. God's gospel is not ultimately about you. Now, do you benefit from God's gospel? Of course. You do. But God did not save you ultimately for your sakes. Over and over again, we're told he works on behalf of his people for his name's sake. That's why God does it ultimately. He has saved you ultimately because he desires worship from you. And though we do do worship by what we say, we learn that in scripture, we also do it in the way in which we live. We worship God in both word and in deed. We worship him when we walk worthy for him. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. I love this passage here. He says, you believers are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Pretty clear, right? It's pretty clear. Believers, we are not our own. We have been bought by God. We have been set apart for him. We are his workmanship, created anew in Christ Jesus for good works. 
So with that truth in mind, here's the clear and simple application to be made by us. If we've been saved, if we've been restored, if we've been redeemed by God through Christ for good works, then our proper response should be that we should walk worthy for him. And folks, that right there is the gospel. That's the gospel. Though we were dead because of sin, God has made us alive through Christ for himself. That's the gospel. John MacArthur, when explaining God's gospel in this passage, he does an excellent job summarizing it. He says, here's the summary of this passage in the gospel in a nutshell. He says, we're saved from sin to life by God's grace through our faith for good works. That's the gospel. That's the essence of what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And that's the message of the gospel. And maybe you're here this morning and you've heard this message and you have already responded favorably to it by turning from your sin and turning your life over to the Lord Jesus and trusting in him for your salvation. My prayer for you this morning is that you would remember who you were before God saved you. That you would remember that you were dead in sin. You were a slave to the ways of the world, the enemy and the flesh. And my prayer is that you would remember that you were completely apart from and opposed to God. And my prayer, believers, is that you would also remember, though that was the case, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, has made you alive with Christ. My prayer is that you would remember, believers, that by grace you've been saved and that you've been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ. My prayer is that you would also remember none of this was your own doing, but it was a gift of God, not a result of works, so that you do not boast. That's my prayer for you, believers. My prayer is that you would know these things, that your heart would be open and enlightened to these truths, and that you would in turn go out from this place and walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Maybe you're here this morning and you've heard this message, but you know for a fact you have not yet responded in faith that this is you. Let me remind you once again, like I did last week, of what's true of you according to God's word. Know this, if you have yet to to give your life over the Lord, if you're not trusting in Him for your salvation, then Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that's not your past, that's your present. If you have yet to give your life up and over to the Lord, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're following the course of this world. You're following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience is at work in you right now. You are living by the passions of your flesh. You're carrying out the desires of your body and mind and you are by nature a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's true of you without Christ. Scripture is clear. If you don't turn from your sin and repent of your sin and turn your life over to the Lord Jesus, you will pay the ultimate and eternal price for your disobedience. This is you. My prayer for you today is that God 
who is rich in mercy and a God of great love and grace would do a work in your heart and life right now. That's my prayer. I pray that God would save you right now by his grace. I, I, I pray that he would give you ears to hear, that he would create in you a clean heart so that you would respond to him in faith. I plead with you right now, like it says in Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but instead turn from your sin, trusting Christ alone for your salvation. Let's pray.